0: It's another great day to talk about what happens inside the boardroom. Welcome to Board Vision, the official podcast of the NACD, the National Association of Corporate Directors. On this show, we share perspectives from leading corporate directors, discuss what makes boards effective, how they can help companies face challenges today and become future ready. How can boards better listen to and work with shareholders to improve corporate value? In this episode, Susan Paley, NACD Vice President of the Chapter Network, speaks with Nell Minow, Vice Chair of Value Edge Advisors, prior President of Institutional Shareholder Services, and an attorney who has worked for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the Office of Management and Budget, and the U.S. Department of Justice. A leading voice in corporate governance and prolific author, Nell shares her insights on how understanding the shareholders perspective is critical in the boardroom, as well as her thoughts on the evolution of corporate governance, CEO compensation and companies and boards that have recently made headlines. Before we dive into this episode, let's hear about the benefits of NACD directorship certification. Today's boards operate in a dynamic and rapidly evolving world. The National Association of Corporate Directors provides directorship certification that sets the standard for high-impact board directors. It's more than a certification. This is the premier program preparing directors to navigate a complex business and governance landscape. NACD's directorship certification will enable you to demonstrate commitment and create real value for your organization. Learn more at nacdonline.org.
1: Now, Minnow, Business Week has dubbed you the queen of good governance. How did you earn that crown?
2: (laughs) Well, I think I'll have to ask them, but my guess, it's because I speak very clearly and I don't equivocate and I have been consistently on the side of shareholders since I began in 1986. So I'm
1: excited to get to that 1986 moment shortly, and I know our Mm -hmm. listeners will be eager. Let me take a moment to just explore, for starters, how you got to that version of yourself where you are clear, you don't equivocate, and the courage that takes. I We know that you had something of a famous father, Newton Minow, who not only sat on many boards, was also chair of the FCC, I think under Kennedy. He perhaps more than anyone in history made famous the phrase vast wasteland and um, with his reputation for professional courage and his record of that. Can you paint us a little picture of what that did to you growing up and how that may have influenced who you are now?
2: Yeah, I was lucky that both of my parents were very eager to speak out on behalf of the public interest, the public good, and our family dinners every night were just filled with stories of things that my mother and my father were doing uh, to benefit the community. So, yeah, my father was just 35 years old when he told the National Association of Broadcasters as the newly appointed chairman of the FCC that they had to do better or he was going to yank their licenses. And they were extremely angry. They were just the three major broadcasters. Broadcast networks at the time. They were extremely angry, and in fact, Sherwood Schwartz decided to insult my dad by naming the sinking ship on Gilligan's Island after him, the famous SS Minnow, which we're very proud of. But in fact, my father did make television better um, by. Working on the legislation that created PBS, by working on legislation that launched the first telecommunications satellite, and by requiring all televisions manufactured to have UHF access—in other words, three things that just created consumer choice—and uh, that, in and of itself, put pressure on the on the broadcast networks. So. That was just one of many, 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 many initiatives that my dad was involved in, including the presidential debates, getting the initial funding for Sesame Street, working on women in the military, just a million different things. And it was always fun to hear him talk about that. And so I did grow up in a family where speaking out uh, about issues of injustice or where things could be better was uh, just considered kind of um, what we all did.
1: What a legacy to be born into and to experience as you were growing up. You mentioned that he was always fighting for consumer choice. Is there any line you can draw between that and what you are doing with your current career? You mentioned always being on the shareholder side.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm often asked about best practices. And I always say that the first year of law school, they teach you all of the structures and the second two years, they teach you how to undermine them. So there really are very uh, significant limits to any (laughs) structural solution. And if people say, well, isn't the answer to separate the CEO and chair, I've got a a lot of examples. where doing that made no difference whatsoever. And so you have to to create choice as the alternative to one structure that fits everybody. And so when people say to me, well, shouldn't we um, have a stakeholder-led corporate philosophy. And I say, absolutely. That's why we have public benefit corporation options. And anybody who wants to create that or invest in that good for them. And the same thing with dual classes of stock, uh, as long as they're fairly uh, presented to the market, my view is get all of the options out there and let the market decide which are the best.
1: Hmm. So some of what you just put down in front of us speaks to decisions that are made along the journey of any evolving system or structure. And I wonder if we can pose this question then in light of that, thinking around the role of the board and how it's changed and evolved over the years, for example, since you joined Institutional Shareholder Services, ISS in the early days of its founding. How has, since that point, you've You've seen a lot of changes. How have governance shifted in terms of the model and some of the improvements you've seen today?
2: For, boards are vastly better now than they were when I began. I like to remind people that when ISS started, OJ Simpson was on five boards. And not only was he on five boards, he was half of the audit committee on one of them. The other guy didn't have a Heisman trophy, but he didn't know any more about accounting and auditing than OJ <laughs> did. And if that isn't a red flag to That should say to shareholders or potential shareholders, maybe you don't want to invest in this company because it doesn't look like this CEO wants to have a board providing much oversight on the numbers. Um, You know, I think we've moved past that point now. We don't have that anymore. There were people like Walter Riston who were on 10 boards. Most of them were not just CEOs like Riston, but a lot of former government uh, employees, government uh, cabinet officials, people like that, were on 10 boards. And we don't see that anymore. We don't see uh, the Enron board. uh, I flagged at a talk I gave at NACD one year because I said this this is the lowest uh, stock ownership of any board Uh, that we have in our database. And the following year, of course, we all know what happened to Enron. So again, that is now considered a red flag. So things that were just taken as standard practice, I think are now gone and directors are much more capable, more engaged, more invested in every sense of the word in the companies. They serve on fewer boards. They are more uh, dedicated, but there's still a long way to go. So I think we've made a lot of progress. The addition of uh, executive session meetings as a part of the routine, I think, has been very significant. So a lot of improvements, but um, not everything we need yet.
1: Hmm. Some of what you just shared kind of makes one's jaw drop. And my hope is that the people who are listening to this podcast have their jaws dropping because they're not doing any of these questionable practices. And I hear you saying that they've decreased and that there's been a lot of structural increase in what we're doing around board governance. Let's talk about investor activism and the way that's evolved over time. Even in the past few decades, how have shareholder interactions with the board changed as you've been a witness to them?
2: I was lucky to come into this business at exactly the moment when everything changed. That was just luck on my part. Uh, You know, for a long, long time, for decades. The idea was what was called the Wall Street rule, vote with management or sell your shares. And that was fine because really what was presented to shareholders at that time was reelect the board of directors, approve the auditors, go home. And very often, the proxy voting function was assigned, you know, basically to the office boy. Uh because it really didn't require any kind of thought. It was a ministerial uh, administrative act. And then two things happened. The first was that the creation of securities that could finance any size of takeover, including hostile takeovers, uh, led to tremendous upheavals and tremendous abuses, unprecedented abuses of shareholders, both by entrenched management with green mail payments and other kinds of devices, and by raiders who would take the value that should belong to the shareholders and appropriate it to themselves. And so all of a sudden there was a reason for shareholders to pay attention and to respond. At the same time, and this was really crucial you had a new class of shareholder with institutional investors, mutual funds, index funds, pension funds, who were big enough and smart enough to understand what was going on and obligated as fiduciaries to do something about it. They were too big to vote with management or sell the shares. If every company in America is adopting poison pills without shareholder vote, Who are you going to switch your shareholdings to? And so, all of a sudden, you had this collision of abuses of shareholders and shareholders who are big enough, smart enough, and as fiduciaries, obligated enough to do something about it. And that happened in the mid to late 1980s. And so… For the first time in 1987, there were shareholder proposals filed by institutional shareholders on corporate governance issues. Prior to that, it had been, you know, sort of gadfly individuals uh, like Ralph Nader um, filing shareholder proposals. But all of a sudden now you had major pension funds, major holders of the stock filing uh, shareholder proposals, and you had double-digit Support for those proposals. All of a sudden, these proposals, which previously had been, uh, you know, 5% was considered a lot of support. All of a sudden, they're getting 25, 27, 30% of the vote. And even though those proposals are advisory only, it still got the attention of the boards of directors. And so that was really the beginning. And a couple of years later, All of a sudden, when CEO pay started to skyrocket with an accounting trick that allowed uh, a lot of stock options to be handed out without having to expense them, shareholders really started to pay attention. And I like to say that was when corporate governance moved from the business pages to the front pages to the editorial pages. Into to the comic pages. You really saw it everywhere. And so that's the beginning of shareholder engagement and shareholder involvement in issues like separating the CEO and the chair, having more of a role in the nomination process. You are
1: the queen. You can do a quick summary in 25 <laughs> seconds. There's so much there to dip into that we can take a moment with throughout this hour. Let me go to some of what you just said, please, which is You've mentioned changes in, gosh, so many things, CEO-chair combination, shareholder proposals, the mere fact that we have executive sessions now and agendas. From the investor angle, how fit for purpose is today's model or structure of the boards, given the pace of doing business that we're in right now and the environment
2: today? I think boards are still a lot better at dealing with crisis than they are at preventing crisis. Uh, I have a lot of sympathy for board members. We've put a lot on them over the years through Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank, new regulations. Uh, But I worry that they get so caught up in the uh, checklists that they lose the big picture, and I think they are still not doing a good enough job on some of the crucial tasks, like CEO succession planning and incentive compensation so spinning that
1: out a little bit, you mentioned CEO succession and comp um, if you want to expound on those great, if you want to bring up some other <laughs> you know disconcerting elements that you're that you're worrying about, where has governance gone wrong where what 's not working in this current system <laughs>
2: Listen, the first CEO pay plan I ever complained about was uh, only $11 million. You know, that's chump change these days. And the disconnect between pay and performance just keeps getting greater and greater. And I will tell you that in my previous job with my same partners, uh, when we were evaluating boards of directors like bonds, AAA to junk, and selling those evaluations to director and officer liability insurers, which I think is the greatest market test we could have asked for. Um, We had a very complicated, very sophisticated algorithm, but honest to goodness, if you only looked at CEO pay, you'd get 90% of the way there um, because, it's kind of tautological that if you're overpaying someone, that person is not going to be getting paid for performance. They're not going to be, uh, you know, I look at CEO pay the same way I look at every other asset allocation decision made by the board of directors in terms of return on investment. And the return on investment of most of these pay plans is less than a piggy bank. So if the board of directors cannot say no to the CEO on ridiculous pay, then they're probably not going to be able to say no on poor decisions. They're probably not going to be able to provide that necessary oversight. And that's why they get into trouble. And, and, you know, once some disaster happens, they generally pull themselves together. Um, See, succession planning is one of the most difficult and one of the most important jobs that a board has. And I remember working on a Blue Ribbon Commission report on this issue for NACD, a million years ago, and uh, with Jeff Sonnenfeld at the head of it, and it still hasn't really improved much. Um, it's it's a touchy subject, and yet it's absolutely essential. You have got to have your CEO gets picked by the president to be in the cabinet, you know, backup plan, and you've got to have your long-term plan, and especially you have to have your long-term plan for cultivating potential candidates uh, from within the company. And CEOs are often not very good at doing that. And quite often, the number two person that you had in mind is a great number two person. That's not the same qualities that make a great CEO. And so I think boards fail at that very badly. And those are two categories that I think boards are bad at. I think boards also need to do a much better job on uh, sort of our late breaking issues like cybersecurity and AI. So,
1: again, you've dropped so many good nuggets for us to pick up here, Nell, and I can't help but just be curious. You talk about the ROI uh, for CEO compensation being a bit set on the ground. Where does one put one's foot down? If I were to not say yes to a CEO's proposed need for compensation, whatever that might be from the audit and the compensation committee, I know that he can go or she can go down the street to Acme Corp and make that kind of money. Where where does the domino stop falling and how do we actually put an end to that without The big event that you mentioned that becomes a crisis oversight?
2: Well, that's when you short Acme Corp because that is somebody who's much more interested in pay that is certain rather than pay that is variable. And for that kind of money, you want someone who's got a lot of variability in the pay. You know, we really, before he was kind of seduced by the dark side of the forest, we used to use Michael Eisner as a great example. When he went to Disney originally, he took the same cash pay that he was getting at Paramount, which I believe was $750,000 a year, and then he took escalated options. And in my opinion, no option grant has any credibility whatsoever unless it is either indexed to the peer group or to the market as a whole. Escalated options is a great way to do that, where you say, I am not going to get paid just because the market has done well, as it did in 2023. I'm going to do better than my competition, and that's how I'm going to get paid.
1: Hmm. Now you mentioned um, the need for skills around cyber and AI. Certainly everyone listening to this can attest to the fact that this is increasingly a conversation in the boardroom. And we actually talked on our last podcast um, with uh, Joanna Berkey about that increasingly becoming a skill set across board members, no matter what your skill, be that cyber, be that something else. How do you, how would you speak to this question of independent board members. We use that phrase all the time. I think in the UK, they call it non-executive board members. To what extent am I independent if I'm on a board and given my invitation to the board by someone on that board? Where does that web get untangled for you? Yeah.
2: You know, I went to a shareholder meeting once, and when it came to the part of the meeting where uh, they were going to reelect the directors, I raised my hand and they said, yes, this was, meeting was, by the way, held in the employee cafeteria, so I was mostly surrounded by employees. And I said, um, fellow shareholders, I'd like you to meet the board of directors. We have the CEO. We have the CFO. Uh, who, in my experience, is mute. I've never heard him say anything. We have the company's lawyer. We have the company's investment banker. And we have another guy. And other guy, I would like you to stand up and tell everybody in this room what your connection is to this company, because I do not believe that this is a company that has outside directors. And he got up and he said, oh, I'm everybody who knows me knows how independent I am. I'm very independent. I'm an independent director. Well, it turned out that he and the CEO were in the same jazz band. They played together on weekends. So, my point is that no matter, just as I said about structural solutions, we can have all the disclosure requirements in the world, and we're still not going to know what makes Somebody independent because it's not about resume independence. It's about independence of mind and spirit. And the only way that I will know if a director is independent is if they say no to the CEO on ridiculous asks like outrageous pay packages. Um, One of my favorite stories about a director that I know is a guy who was a very experienced businessman, but he had no special expertise in accounting or audit. Nevertheless, they made him the chairman of the audit committee. And that was fine. And he, once a month, went to the company and met with the internal auditor. And everything seemed to be going fine. And he went to one of those meetings, and there was a young woman who had been on the internal audit staff who was not there for that meeting. And he said, where is she? Is she out sick today? Is everything okay? And the internal auditor said, oh, she quit. And this director said, "Uh uh-huh. And he went home and he called her. And he said, did you quit? And she said, no, I was fired because I uncovered some things that were inappropriate and they would not let me report them. That's a good director. He didn't have any special expertise in auditing. He just had a sense of when to ask the question. Hmm. Right? So, those are some
1: glaring examples of where things have gone wrong or right. And I hear you on, I'll I'll believe someone's an independent director when they say no to a CEO, for example, on outrageous pay packages, As I think you're phrasing, how do we get from here to there? How do we get more people like the person you just described who went home and made a phone call?
2: In my opinion, uh, nobody should be allowed to serve on a board unless they have at least 50% of the vote from shareholders. And there was one outrageous case, where none of the nine directors received majority vote. And they turned in their resignations to themselves. And then they turned down those resignations, and they all stayed on the board. Now, that's just craziness. Obviously, you know, that's an extreme example. But uh, I I tried unsuccessfully, but I still think this is going to happen. When I had D&O liability insurer clients, I tried to persuade them that anybody who didn't get a majority vote from the shareholders should not be insured. Because I think the business judgment rule rests on the idea that the shareholders have delegated some authority to the directors. They haven't delegated the authority if they didn't vote for the person. So uh, I still think someday that will be the law, uh, but it isn't there yet. But I think that you know companies should voluntarily agree that they will not put anybody on the board unless they get at least 50% of the vote. And then investors have got to get a little bit more focused on voting no on those boards that they don't approve of.
1: Hmm. It's going to be a while before I lose that image of nine
2: people. In resignation. <laughs> well, as you know, Susan, I'm a big movie fan. And in my head, I see the Marx Brothers doing that scene. Oh, cigar, mustache and all. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. We'll work on a reenactment. And we are going to touch a little
1: later on your movie prowess. So I'm glad you gave us some foreshadowing movie, <laughs> movie technique. You foreshadowed that. Now, we talked a little bit about the myriad ways in which things could or have gone wrong in terms of board governance and some of the good news about the way it's evolved. I'm going to call upon your um, your legendary minnow, Courage, that we spoke about earlier <laughs> that you've gotten handed down and inherited. Tell us more broadly than just governance, where, in your opinion now, has capitalism
2: gone awry You know, Adam Smith, the father of capitalism, predicted that the moment business leaders got together, they would conspire in ways that would essentially soften any kind of market oversight. And I think that that is true. You know, I spent eight years in the government and I was at the Environmental Protection Agency. I was at the Office of Management and Budget, which is part of the Executive Office of the President. I was at the Justice Department. And I saw there how often it was that corporate representatives would come to the government and instead of saying, you know, we really want regulations to help make sure that we have the most robust free market imaginable every single time. A corporate representative, a lobbyist, came to talk to us 100% of the time. It was either to limit their liability, externalize their costs, um, impose barriers to entry, in other words, to remove themselves from exactly the kind of vigorous free market that they always love to rhapsodize about and and i've only seen that problem get a lot worse i spent a lot of time during the pandemic studying this issue of fake ceo funded front groups with names like citizens for a better tomorrow women for fracking you know that appear to be grassroots but they're really what we in washington call astroturf they're made up and how pernicious they're effect has been. So, I think that capitalism is still the best system in the world for creating jobs, for creating products that we need, um, and and for creating wealth for shareholders. It's, you know, when, when young people complain to me about capitalism, I ask them to point me to anything that has ever worked as well. That doesn't mean it's working as intended or as well as it should. And when I see corporate America trying very hard to limit even the small amount of shareholder feedback. I testified last summer before a committee that was trying to cut off even the shred of shareholder feedback in non-binding advisory-only shareholder proposals. And I said, my goodness, don't you want to know what your shareholders think? And isn't this a a fail-safe, a uh, a, a valve that allows them to express that in a way that is not disruptive to you, because if they don't have that, believe me, the next thing they're going to have to go to is going to be much more intrusive and much more expensive. It will be something like a proxy contest. So when I, so you know, it seems to me that that CEOs, boards of directors, and corporate executives of all kinds should welcome that kind of feedback from shareholders. The same way, in theory, they they welcome feedback from their customers. Yeah, I once, I have to tell you one more story. I was once talking to a director about a shareholder proposal that got uh, 60% of the vote. And he said, you have to understand, those are fringe shareholders. And I said, they are 60%, you're the fringe. You're bringing up
1: so many beautiful cases of, I guess, speaking truth to power, but I don't know what we would label it. You mentioned a minute ago that you said to those folks, um, don't you want to know what your shareholders are thinking? You gave a good answer for why they should. What's your gut tell you about their actual answer and what's behind that?
2: You know, I, in my early years, spent a lot of time talking to investor relations people, people whose job was investor relations. And they would say to me, uh, I work on the buy side and he works on the sell side. And I would say, well, who works on the hold side? Don't you want to talk to those people who are your permanent shareholders, the index funds, the pension funds? They're not going anywhere. And as they say about planting a tree, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. And I said, someday you're going to have Carl Icahn or somebody like that knocking on your door, that's not time to make friends with these permanent shareholders. The time to make friends with them is now. You want to be able to say to Carl Icahn, well, really, I talked to you know, CalPERS and BlackRock just last week, and they're pretty comfortable with our strategy. So, I don't understand why they don't want to hear from their shareholders. I do understand that It's never pleasant to hear that people don't like what you're doing, but it's better to hear it early rather than too late.
1: At the bottom of all of that, what I hear you saying, if I listen with these kinds of ears, is really it's about relationships and the human interaction. We could talk about the numbers all day, but you're right. Getting to know Carl Icahn is not going to be the the right time is not once he's walked into your boardroom, of course.
2: Yeah, I will tell you a story about Carl, and from my very first year in corporate governance when uh, the shareholders who were really active f- fit around one conference room table. So you know, if you go to the meeting of the Council of Institutional Investors or this year, the international meeting of institutional investors from around the world is actually taking place in Washington, DC. Uh, I'm looking forward to speaking there. But at this time, the number of pension funds that were actually speaking out was so small that they fit around a conference room table. And at this time, Carl Icahn himself was going against the then oil company Texaco, which had been in a, a, just a series of awful, awful years and had to go into bankruptcy and litigation, just terrible. Anyway, we agreed that this small group of shareholders would invite Carl Icahn and the CEO of Texaco to come speak and make their best case. So um, we said, you can come in together or you can come in one at a time. And they chose to come in one at a time. So the CEO, fairly new CEO of Texaco came in and he said, look, here is what we're doing to pull ourselves out of the bankruptcy and the problems that we've had from the litigation. And then his eyes lit up and he started talking about the oil business. And I don't think anybody in the room knew anything about the oil business, but it was easy to tell that he knew everything about the oil business and that it was everything to him. And in fact, he said to us, you have a lot of stock in my company. Everything I own is in this company. Everything. And he left. Carl Eichen came in. And he said, "I have whatever number of billions of dollars invested in the company. Are you with me?" That was it. That was his entire presentation. He didn't say anything about the business or that he, you know, spent any time looking at it. And at that moment, the mood of the room, which had been strongly in favor after so many bad years with Texaco, of anybody coming in to make a difference, completely switched over to the CEO, and that is how Carl Icahn lost. Now, why wouldn't every company want to make that kind of presentation to that kind of an audience? Mm.
1: What a story. So, that's a great example of something gone wrong from the activist perspective. How much has that continued to be the case, or is that an exception, and usually it doesn't go that way?
2: It's interesting. That, in the early part of my career, when there was a great deal of upheaval, and there were all of these kinds of hostile takeovers uh, and Ivan Bosky, the arbitrager, went to prison, and uh, we had you know movies like wall Street um, there was a lot of complaining, and I think some of it was legitimate that that Wall Street, that the big investment funds never looked past the next quarter. That they were very short term in their perspective, and therefore they were very burden the hand. If if Carl Icahn came in and offered them a burden the hand of maybe it wasn't a hundred percent of the unrealized value, but it was enough that their quarterly numbers would look good and they would go for it. And I think there was some legitimacy to that. There was a lot of conversation on Capitol Hill about whether they should uh, tax short-term earnings differently. And we had to point out to them that a lot of the pension funds don't pay taxes. And so, It was not, they'd be indifferent to that. There was a lot of conversation about that. And it seems to me that we've really done a 180 because now the institutional investors, which are bigger than ever, uh, at at the time uh, that we got into this business, they were maybe 25% of the market. Now they're 60, 70% of the market. They have a long term perspective because, for goodness sake, ESG, DEI, those are all very long term perspective. And now, what we're hearing from corporate executives is that their perspective is too long-term. And, you know, w- what are you going to do? They don't want us to be short-term. They don't want us to be long-term. What is left? Um, so, you know, I think that, that activism uh, is more geared now to making the case for long-term returns. And that's why you have something like, you know, engine number one, and activists like ICANN like and Nelson Peltz don't always succeed because shareholders are more sophisticated in the way that they look at what they have to offer.
1: Hmm. The image of a set of bifocals came to mind that you really uh-huh. need to balance it, right? Yeah. Well, we are really, I think, benefiting from your, uh, you don't ha- no doubt have a tendency to not pull punches and to tell it like it is from your perspective. So I'm going to challenge us to do a really quick speed round. Of, okay. Um, we could subtitle this like, no, Minnow, what's gone wrong? And um, I've got... Three organizations that have been in the news, certainly you're aware of them if anyone's picked up a newspaper. I'll hand you one at a time, and I'll just ask you to give me a sentence or two so the listeners can can get your your sensibility around them. First of them is what's gone on most recently, and that's early 2024 with Boeing.
2: Boeing is a serial offender. It's been a bad board for a long time. When I said earlier that boards are pretty good in a crisis, I was not referring to Boeing, which has really been insulated from the market by being having just one major competitor and having a lot of long term contracts. But this board has really lost the confidence of consumers, uh, if not investors. And uh, I think they need a complete overhaul. Just like the airplanes. (laughs) Right. Next one OpenAI. OpenAI tried to be a duck-billed platypus. It does not work. Um, You cannot have an organization that has both for-profit and not-for-profit elements to it. And I am guessing that before the end of the year, it will be purchased in whole, probably by either Facebook or Apple.
1: We'll check back in December, see what happened. Noted. All right, my third and final, Starbucks and some unionization issues that we might see elsewhere as well more broadly.
2: Yeah, again, I'm not sure why corporate executives are doing such a bad job, not just with shareholders, but with employees. Um, It's shocking to me that Every single glossy annual report that you get from companies will brag that their employees are their most important asset, and they don't treat them like that, and they should. Well, any one of those are
1: endless rabbit holes we can go down. I'll save that for another time and bring us to a question that brings us back to specifically board members and shareholders, something you're very experienced in.
2: So, how can boards get more from their shareholders? As I said before, the time to reach out to them is now. Get friendly with them. Find out what's going on with them. Um, a couple of companies are smart enough to send representatives to the annual meetings of the Council of Institutional Investors. It's a great time to get to know the people that are your shareholders. I remember one year, a CEO came to speak to the Council of Institutional Investors and had done such a terrible job of preparing that... He started giving the speech that he might give to Wall Street analysts and not to large institutional shareholders, some of whom are union pension funds. And he started by trashing his union and completely lost the audience immediately. So, a good thing to do is to reach out to them, to ask them what their priorities are. And the best thing you can do is make sure that you have an outstanding board, that you have a vigorous, involved, expert board of directors. I met with the head of a nominating committee once, and I said, I'm here to talk to you about the three directors who are going to be up for re-election next year. And he said, well, all three of them want to stay on the board. So that's it. And I said, okay, Let's refresh your recollection about what your job is. Your job is to make sure that you get the best three people in the entire world to be on your board. Here's what you've got. You've got a guy who's an alcoholic. You either send him to Betty Ford or you put somebody else on the board. You've got a guy who used to work for the company. You've got too many insiders already. You need to replace him. And you've got a guy who's related to the CEO. That's not a good thing. So uh, let's start over again and tell me who it is you're going to nominate. What happened in that case? Well, in that case, um, we gave them a list of uh, of people that we thought were exceptionally qualified. And they took one who I, I'll give a, a, my business partner credit for picking this guy because he was on the board of one of their subsidiaries. So they thought he was kind of, you know, inside already. And he ended up doing just a terrific job and replacing the CEO. Hmm. That's the CEO. Yeah.
1: So I heard you talking about two factors there that boards can engage with. One of them is really down to our earlier commentary around relationships and being in human dialogue with folks, asking what are your priorities? The other one is something you've been speaking to for decades and we at NAACD speak to all the time, which is having the right people around the boardroom, around the board table. Is there anything else that would be sort of more, maybe you would recommend as a radical disruption of the current (laughs) model or is that kind
2: of what we need to be doing right now is what you just laid out? Um, You know, I think that the move to... Going to professional headhunting firms rather than does anybody know anybody that we should add to the board has been a good one. I'd like to see that to be more prevalent.
1: Mm, interesting. Well, I'm sure the, a lot of the headhunting folks are delighted to hear that. It's probably, <laughs> again, if we put on our bifocals. It's probably a mix, right? Like vetting folks that we know might be out there who seem to have the right chops.
2: Yeah, but it also helps that it's just not too cozy, Uh, It shouldn't just be somebody that you met in the country club locker room. You know, uh, we want people that you would not have thought of. And that includes people that don't look exactly like you or Mm -hmm. think exactly like you.
1: Yes. Yeah. plus just, of course, the cognitive diversity that people bring from their different experiences. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Well, as we're reaching the end of our time together, I have to touch on this commentary that you mentioned earlier about films. We, I know you've been asked this question in the past, but I can't resist getting into this juicy topic. I also come from a production and TV film background. You are a movie reviewer, and you've been doing it, I think, for how many years now? Since 1995. <sighs> So this is almost as prolific as your experience in governance. And we're wondering if there's any film or show about business, perhaps about governance uh, that you would recommend or or invite us to think about. And of course, I think we're all wondering if Succession is on your list.
2: (laughs) Well, Succession, of course, would be on my list and Billions as well. But uh, I always go back to the nineteen. 54 film, The Solid Gold Cadillac, which begins with an annual shareholder meeting and the shareholder with 10 shares raising her hand and asking if the CEO isn't overpaid. And if you just added like seven or eight zeros onto all the numbers in that movie, it would be 100% up-to-date. It raises a lot of questions about corporate governance, about conglomerates, about the military-industrial complex, and it's a romantic comedy. (laughs) So it even even won an Oscar for Best Costume Design. So (laughs) so it's a delightful movie. I highly recommend it based on a play by Kaufman and Hart and uh, with the wonderful Judy Holliday and Paul Douglas in the starring roles. It's a terrific movie. And then a movie that I really recommend that came out not that long ago but that nobody ever pays attention to is actually based on a true story uh it's based on the story of the biggest bank embezzlement in the history of canada it's called owning mahoney mahoney the main character played by philip seymour hoffman of course always wonderful and uh he um just was a bank vice president. He was the youngest bank vice president in the history of his company. And he embezzled a huge amount of money and lost every single penny of it gambling. He didn't buy anything. He didn't buy his girlfriend a present. He didn't buy new clothes for himself. And what's interesting about that movie is that 100% of the characters in the movie are doing risk assessment all the time. The movie begins with the bank's committee deciding to turn down one of their largest investors for a business loan. They decide she's not a good risk. And that was a bad decision. And her account gets ends up getting completely embezzled. Uh, but everybody has to assess risk, including the manager of the casino in the United States, who is the only casino manager ever found liable for negligence because they said, you saw what this guy was wearing. You know he's not a wealthy person. And you allowed him to lose millions of dollars in your casino. So, and then the, even the Royal Canadian Mounted Police have to assess risk of when they can go in and have enough evidence to, asses, to assess, uh, to arrest him. And so, it's just a terrific movie that is from every angle about the kinds of issues that anybody in business has to think about all the time.
1: Mm. Spoken like a true expert on both topics, film and governance. <laughs> we love that. We've got two assignments for our weekend viewing, Solid Gold Cadillac and Owning Mahoney. Did I get those right? That's right. Perfect. I know I'm going to tune in myself and start streaming. Well, uh, Nell, this has been such a delight. Before we sign off, is there anything that you wanted to add? If you were given right now a magic wand, what is the thing, the single thing that we'd change by the end of 2024 and end of 2025 in the world of governance?
2: I think it would be more outreach from boards of directors directly to the shareholders. I think that would be, that would benefit everybody. And as I said, no one should be allowed to serve on a board if they don't get at least 50% of the votes in favor. I think that would be a tremendous uh, step forward. But I do want to compliment NACD. I've been around NACD since I got into this business. I've spoken at so many of the conferences. I've talked to so many of the members. And I think NACD has made enormous contributions to improving corporate governance. And I'm so admiring going back to John Nash, who was a real visionary.
1: Hmm. Thank you for that unsolicited testimonial. We appreciate it. And it's been a delight to stand here on the side of the microphone from NACD and speak with you now. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
0: That concludes this episode of Board Vision. We hope you enjoyed listening. Please subscribe and join us next time. Until then, visit nacdonline.org to stay informed about the latest resources NACD has to offer, such as memberships, certification, national or chapter events, and our content, including reports, articles, and directorship magazine. That's nacdonline.org. Thank you for listening.